and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. I haven't seen you for a while. I know. I haven't seen you for a while either. I've been traveling and we've all been off. Yeah. Where did you go? We went to Mexico City for a long time, which was nice. I had a wonderful time there and then spent some time doing a lot of like house projects. So built a plant stand from scratch, which was fun. And then refurbished a bunch of furniture that had been annoying me. <laughs> so it was time well spent. Wow. Nice. What That's- did you do? You traveled too, right? Yeah, I did. I went to uh, New York State a little bit in Vermont. Oh, nice. It was oh, very nice. What, is it hot up there? Was it? Just, it couldn't have it, been as hot as it was here. No, during. I mean, it, it was. It was hot then, but not nothing like here. No, nothing like <laughs> 115 degree. Oh my god! Insane. insane. Days on end. Yeah, I know. <laughs> this is this is where it's really going down. Yeah, for sure. The climate change very much feels real. Not that I was disbelieving before, but it feels real now. Yeah, when you're here. Yeah, for sure. Well, on a different topic, far away from from climate change, this week I'm speaking with Eun Lee about her new book, The Book of Goose. Oh, I was really excited to read this book and I was bummed that I couldn't join the conversation. But can you tell us, just give me a preview of what you guys talked about? Yeah, I wasn't expecting the setting. Uh, it's set in a, a rural village in post-war France. So okay. that was the first surprise for me. And it's um, it's the story of a really close friendship between two young women who are kind of ambivalent about their their role in society and, and other people and really just love and want to be with each other. Sounds um, kind of like Elena Ferrante novels except they have to also hate being with each other. I think there's a little bit of that, but no, their their compassion and dedication to each other is is really beautiful. And they they also kind of run a scheme in a way. I mean, it's not mm. not completely, but they they write this book together, but it's it's more one that writes the book than the other, but the other poses as the author of the book and um it takes her many places. The book is published. It's a sensation. She's, you know, regarded as this child prodigy and um, she leaves the village and leaves her friend. And ultimately they move apart, but I loved the book. It's really strange I, in a way I, I did not expect. And, and the book they write together is really strange. It's all about dead children. I was going to say that yeah, I felt like you were taking me from like an Elena Ferrante novel to like a JT Leroy situation. <laughs> yeah, it did have elements of that. And of course, you know, Eun Lee being a, a famous author, it seems like it was also maybe her way to examine some of, of what goes along um, with mm. publishing a book and dealing with mm. press. I mean, in a really sly way, it also doesn't feel like that at all. But I love stories of female friendship, of course, um, because that's been the most poignant experience of my life is being friends with other women and then you know, especially yeah. when you're young, but it also has this very anti-sentimental side with the things they write and, and what they're encouraging each other to do. It was great. I was really, really into it. And Ian Lee is just brilliant. And it was, it was wonderful to speak with her. That sounds great. Let's get to that conversation. Okay. I'm excited to be speaking with the writer Ian Lee today. 
Ian Lee is the author of many books, including the novels Must I Go, Where Reason Ends, and The Vagrants, the story collections A Thousand Years of Good Prayer and Gold Boy Emerald Girl, as well as the memoir Dear Friend, From My Life, I Write to You in Your Life. Her writing appears frequently in The New Yorker and the Literary Journal of Public Space, and her numerous honors include a Penn Malamud Award, a Penn Hemingway Award, the MacArthur Fellowship, and a Wyndham Campbell Prize. Presently, she serves as the Director of Creative Writing at Princeton University. She joins me to discuss her latest novel, The Book of Goose, a tale of passionate friendship between two adolescent girls set in a rural village in post-war France. The Book of Goose is told from the perspective of its narrator, Agnes. Now living in America, many years later, she recounts the devotion and creativity she shared with her best friend, Fabienne, when they were young. Together, the two girls composed a book of stories, but at Fabienne's urging, Agnes posed as the sole author when the book was eventually published, setting the course of their lives in two very separate directions. An examination of friendship, poverty, feminine ambivalence, and death, Lee's novel is perhaps most concerned with the nature of stories themselves, where they come from, how they function, and who they belong to. Thank you so much for being here, Ian. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really curious about how this book came to you, especially the setting and the time, which seems like a bit of a departure for you. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think there was a seed of the novel that I was reading an old book review of Elizabeth Bowen, the Irish writer Elizabeth Bowen. And so she wrote a review of four French prodigies work. And some of them we, you know, had heard. And there was one girl that never heard of her name. And I just started to research and not much was known about her. So I think anytime when you're a novelist, if there's not much you can learn from history or from research, that always is a good sign that now you have all the space on the stage is yours. So I think that was where it was started. I thought, well, I was going to write something set in post-World War II in France because that was the original girl author's setting. But I wasn't really interested in the original story, which was sort of like a genius, young genius who disappeared from history very quickly and nobody knew. So what I really wanted was to write two girls' stories. And in fact, Fabienne and Agnes, the two girls in the book, they came to me as a pair. Right away, they started to sort of just talk to me as a pair. So that was how the novel started. Why do you think the the two instead of the one appealed to you? Well, you know, there are different reasons. One is girlhood friendship, especially between age 12 and 14. It's always a fascinating thing to observe girls around that age. One is, you know, they're not children anymore. They're on the cusp of becoming adults, but they're still children in a way that they can make up an entire world by themselves. And Fabian and Agnes particularly, you know, they lived in the French countryside. There was not much, they did not have any possessions, but they had their own sort of imaginations and they made up their own games. They were quite free. You know, poverty was one thing, but poverty also offered a kind of freedom to those two. So they had their 
space to wander. They had their days to while away, you know, just using their imaginations. So I think two would make an interesting story than one. And also, you know, when I said they came to me right away as a pair was they sort of talked with each other in the way that they feed into each other. You know, they feed each other's into each other's imagination. But they're also, at one point, Agni, as the narrator said, they're like one orange, you know, one half the orange facing the sun, the other half the orange facing the shade. And that's how always those two function. You know, they're two, but they're in one. So, I mean, they're twins in a way. They call themselves twins, but not related by blood. So all these sort of just doubling in childhood friendship, I'm interested in that. Yeah, you know, I thought there was something almost symbolic about two people. You know, they go on to write this book together and all the ideas come from Fabienne and then Agnes is the one who writes them all down. And I think for most writers, there isn't a sense of that everything comes from you. There's the inspiration. There's always that kind of splitting or dichotomy in creating something. There's the source material and then there's the story that already they kind of enacted this way of creating something as well. Yeah, I think in particular Fabian is such a sharp observer of the world in such an imaginative, she has such an imaginative voice, but she wants to make the whole thing a game. When a child wants to play a game, she needs a second child to be part of the game. She's the creator of this game, but she's also the director of the game. She dictates the terms of their game. She dictates that Agnes would be the person to write the story and to bear the name to their production. So I think in that sense, yes, I do think they are an interesting pair. I was totally fascinated by them. I wondered how much in the story for you felt like some way of transposing your own experience, you know, to a different time and era. I mean, I know that you were a child prodigy um, (laughs) or just taking, maybe taking certain elements that someone would expect you to write closer to your own experience, setting them in a very distant place. But if that ultimately changes the story for you, if you start to see kind of more universal elements that we might ignore often because we get so caught up in identity and, you know, kind of background, location, all these things, as though those are very individual, where here, so many of the elements seem like, yes, it could be put into a different place and time, and it would be, in some ways, a similar story. I very much agree. Thank you so much for that comment, because I have been thinking, you know, because people people sometimes would ask, you know, why friends? Why post-World War II? That's, you know, that's not where my own background is but I, I think there's something about girls around that time around that age and there's also something about writers writing books for artists making art that's quite a universal experience and I can easily see these girls in another setting for instance I could easily see them as two Japanese girls or two Chinese girls or two New Zealand girls, you know, even American. I think America is slightly more difficult because compared to the rest of the world, America 
has still been a little bit more prosperous than you know the French countryside. And I think the limitation of material in a possession is a necessary condition for these kind of imaginations to thrive. But the other thing I agree with you, I think it's, you know, at some point when Agnes having written two books and now she moved into an English boarding school and people would say, well, when you were living in the French countryside, you know, you wrote about French countryside, you wrote about the poverty, but now you live in a boarding school, a finishing school, you should write about English paradise. You know, that kind of pressure on any writer, you know, myself included, is to, I think they, when I say they, in the book, it means the publishers, you know, the teacher, the headmistress, they'll have this anticipation, expectation for a girl like Agnes. But I think that's a, again, that's a, I would say that's a universal pressure that a lot of writers have to face. So it's, for myself, was interesting to make up the story and sort of just to I have been familiar with the writer's experience, right? So Agnes had to go through this whole publishing, you know, publicity, touring, and it was a very new world for her. But then Fabian said something earlier in the novel before they finished the first book. While they were working on the book, Fabian said, you know, what people want, you don't give them. And I thought that's a, by instinct, she knew that was the best kind of art making is, you subvert people's expectations. And I'm glad you said you didn't know where the book was going. In a way, I think I wanted to write the novel to subvert people's expectations. Yeah, and that's why I think I was so surprised reading it because knowing very little of you or, but you know, knowing some and having read some of your work, I didn't expect this at all. But that's part of what's yeah. so exciting about it, I think. Yeah. I wanted to talk about Fabienne because she's such a strong character. She's so self-possessed. She's very dark. Mm-hmm. I also thought that it seems that some of her creativity is linked to her experience of death, mm-hmm. that she's experienced so much death already in her short life, but that she sees ghosts mm-hmm. and she sees ghosts everywhere. And kind of this seeing what is not there is almost a inkling of how she will be an author because she can create fiction. Maybe you could talk a little bit about her and her strength and how she compares to to Agnes. Right, right. So Fabian is, you know, she's the true prodigy, right? As you said, she was young, she wasn't educated, but she had this whole world in her head. And she figured out things about how to tell stories just by instinct. And I like get also by, you know, staying in touch with all these people dead from her. You know, this was right after the war. So many people died from the war. And also so many people died from just illness and childbirth. And so, so she had that. I think she was, at the beginning of the novel, she was only 12, going on 13. But she already probably had a very long life. And the other thing I find her interesting is, she's quite sharp. She doesn't really care about, she doesn't care what other people think of her. She doesn't want to please people, but she has this kind of sharpness. It's almost like a knife, but when you're a knife, you have this sharpness. You want to find something to cut. You want to 
have that slashing cutting action, which Agnes is the other side of the friendship. Well, she offers something. She offers to be that target of the sharpness. You know, in a way, I think Fabian is violent, right? Sometimes she's violent towards her friends. She's violent towards the world. But she also needs Agnes who offers that buffer, who also offers a target of her sharpness. And so I like that dichotomy of girlfriends during a developmental stage. They need each other and they feed it to each other. And Agnes, of course, you know, at some point she realizes she also has strength. She also has power over Fabian. She said, you know, Fabian is the knife, but I am the whetstone. You know, you cannot say which one is harder. I make her shop. She's almost harder than Fabian. So I find that just Fabian's strength and power are with her sharpness and her, you know, unrestrained violence and just explosion. But I think Agnes, Agnes is closer to my heart in a way that she has, she's a little muddier. I think she's, she's ambivalent. She's muddy. She's not as clear as Fabian. But she has these muddy depths, you know, she can anticipate what people want from her and she can play too. She can give that, you know, if people want a pleasant child prodigy, she can do that. So I feel those two, they together, they make a good show. They make a good story. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I mean, something that I found, I think that is very universal about friendship, especially at that age, is they have an ambivalence towards the rest of the world, towards their families. They only really need each other. That's the sense. At least that's the sense from Agnes towards Fabian. And I don't know, sometimes it seems it's possibly not reciprocated as much that, you know, Agnes needs Fabian. Maybe Fabian doesn't really need anyone at all. And it almost seems like that because, you know, in this way, she makes this ultimate sacrifice for Agnes, which is that they co-author a book with this postmaster, Monsieur DeVoe, mm-hmm. who helped them then get it published. But ultimately, Fabienne decides that Agnes is the one whose name should be on the book, not hers. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I think it's kind of saying, you're the one who can go and have a life outside of our village, who can travel, who can become well-known. I don't really care about any of that. And that was an interesting choice to me I, as someone who would probably be more jealous just that she decides that she'll let Agnes have that. I was wondering about that choice. Yes, I think, well, in general, we would say, why wouldn't Fabian want these things that, you know, she offers Agnes? But what's interesting to me is Fabian has a better reading of herself than the world has. The villagers and the adults, and they just thought she was a very cool girl, you know, very uneducated, uncouth, and just not pleasant. She wasn't a pleasant girl to most people. She knew what she had. She had this talent, but she she also knew the world really doesn't care for her. She has that sense from the very beginning that what the world wants from a child author, she cannot deliver. And so she can deliver the writing, but she cannot deliver that facade. And I think she sees Agnes has this ability. And I think what's interesting is 
they made the book, they co-authored the book, and they have the book published. It's all very dandy and fine. But all of a sudden, there's this schoolmistress, right, coming to get Agnes out of France to England. That's a little out of, just out of blue. And I think in the second half of the book, we realized, we started to see a little bit more Fabian's emotional response to this separation. She became a little listless, and she made up all these stories. She even made up a boy, right, to step in as herself. But in the end, she was listless. And I think towards the end, I think the readers and Agnes both got a sense if Fabian actually does need the girlfriend. Fabian does need Agnes to be there for her, which is the sad thing, you know, when two friends are sort of like, a pair of twins or they're so complete. And then there was, there comes a separation and you put them back together. They're not the same. They cannot be the same two people. So that's the eternal, the separation for eternity really starts one. Sort of Fabian sets their fates into two different directions. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Eun Lee, author of The Book of Goose. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Rachel Aviv on the line with us today. Her new book is called Strangers to Ourselves, Unsettled Minds, and the Stories That Make Us. And Rachel is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Rachel, what book are you going to recommend? Well, I'm going to stay within the realm of writing about psychiatry, but a book that I read like 15 years ago was Lewis Sass's Madness and Modernism. Mm. And it was the first time I'd ever really seen someone like try to describe the subjective experience of schizophrenia. And the way he did that was by comparing modernist literature to clinical writings about schizophrenia. And he tried to show how in both there was this like erasure of narrative and a sense of time and space and this dissolving of boundaries between the self and the other. And he basically makes the argument that schizophrenia has been romanticized and that actually it resembles more this kind of hyper self-consciousness that we see in literature. Wow, that's so interesting. How did you come upon that book? I have no idea how I came upon that book. (laughs) It was, uh, yeah, it was a long time ago. It was like, it was the beginning of writing about mental illness. And I have no memory of that, of how I learned about it. Have you ever spoken with somebody who is schizophrenic or who's experienced schizophrenia in some way about this relationship between schizophrenia and and modernism? A woman that I wrote about who had schizophrenia, this book was very meaningful to her. Oh, and actually the way I had found her as a subject was I was like Googling modernism and madness and I found her blog and she wrote about his book and described that it was like the first time that she felt like her particular experience of schizophrenia, like she recognized herself in a book. Wow, that's so interesting. It sounds great. Will you give us the title of the book again and the author? Madness and Modernism by Lewis Sass. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks. 
We've been speaking with Rachel Aviv. Her new book is called Strangers to Ourselves, Unsettled Minds and the Stories That You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Eun Lee, author of The Book of Goose. There's a lot of intriguing observations about stories and storytelling here. And one of them kind of having to do with that is that Agnes realizes or says, you know, stories have expiration dates. And when Fabienne dies, which we learn at the beginning of the book, she's died. This is told in recollection. She's died in childbirth a number of years later. When Fabienne dies, Agnes says their story expires. And I thought that was such a interesting idea. I wonder if you could talk about that. Yes, I think, you know, of course, you know, if you look at the original seed of the story, this child prodigy expired, right? (laughs) She published a book and she disappeared into history. Her entire narrative, her life story actually had an expiration date was when the world did not need her as a prodigy anymore. So I think Agnes, you know, observation about stories expired. Now she tells the story from American countryside, you know, entire different setting. And I think there is that ambivalence stories should not expire. And yet, in reality, stories do expire. So I think that's her, her motivation or her motive to write this book about their childhood friendship is the story already expired, but there's a way to salvage something. Just as, you know, for myself, is there's a way to salvage that child prodigy the world no longer had any use for and then just was forgotten by history. So I think maybe we writers always have that ambivalence towards, you know, the stories that have already gone out of people's, you want to write these characters back to life. Another distinction you make is, I can't remember which girl says this, but I think it's Agnes who's wondering, between the difference of knowing a story and writing it out, and she's thinks like, isn't it enough to just know a story? There's so many different kind of modes of storytelling here. You know, they make up these stories and it's innocent. Then they start to write it down and they're actually putting it out as a book and it becomes something else. So, and it sets their lives in a different trajectory and actually kind of breaks them apart. So as someone who's, you know, experienced this kind of literary trajectory yourself, I thought that was a very telling observation. (laughs) Well, I think the question is always, why do you write that book? You know, if you know the story, isn't that enough? No, I think for writers, probably it's never enough. We just really have to write the story out. But Agnes, I find Agnes fascinating. She is an actress. She's a pretty good writer, you know, towards the end of her, when she started to tell the story. She's very good at writing the story, but she's not a willing writer. She's unwilling. She does this sort of under protest, I find that fascinating. And again, I think she is ambivalent about whether knowing the story is enough. But when she says, isn't it enough we know the story, why do we have to write it? And Fabian comes back with a very sort of 
nonsense question is, you know, what else can we do? <laughs> she said, we're so bored. You know, she said, we don't have other games to play. Why don't we just follow up with this game? So again, I think Agnes, I always feel she's a muddy character. You know, when I say muddy, which really means her ambivalence about a lot of things they do. But she's willing to let Fabian lead. And Fabian is so clear, so driven, but she doesn't really think about the muddiness of the situation, right? So that in the end, I think she is, as you said, she's really sacrificed for everything. I mean, in some ways, the game that they play is becoming known that the story could exist without, it could be written down even, but, you know, publishing it, having other people read it is where it is really, they become known, they get a brief amount of notoriety for it. Right. And of course, you know, Fabian said, why do you want people to know how we live? Again, that's a philosophical question about what do you want the world take us for? And Agnes Agnes doesn't know, but Fabian really says, you know, let's figure that out later, but I do want the world to know who we are. And that kind of clarity and motivation, you know, later in the novel, Agnes reflects that had Fabian been born in a better situation, right, you know, a better environment, she would have gone on to become a genius because she has all these drives, she has all these talents, but she just did not in her life, she did not have those things available to her. We should say that the book, the girl's book, is called Les Héros Enfants. Yeah, the happy yeah. children. Yeah. Yes, and it's full of stories of dead children. <laughs> and they say that dead children are the only happy children, quite cynically. And it sounds like a very, you know, we don't learn too much of what's in the book, but it sounds like, yes, it's about their life of hardship. It's about taking care of animals. It's about villagers, you know, doing nasty stuff when they're drunk. It's a very, it sounds like a dark book. I think part of the reason their book gained notoriety was, you know, this was 19, late 1940s, early 1950s, French countryside was poor. And then there was American occupation, right? So the world was so eager to hear what it was like for American soldiers to be in a French countryside. And this was, of course, the book was told from French village girl, peasant girl's point of view. They called her the pig herd, the gold herd, pig herd. So I think there was that a little bit of, you know, what I'm sure we know that when we've seen that all the time. So people want to say, we want to hear an authentic story, you know, told by an authentic voice. You know, in a way, I think Fabian and Agnes would not care about authenticity. They would care about, you know, how to tell the stories of all these dead people. Because you mentioned they were dark, the stories were dark, but it was also their lives. They would not think of their own lives dark. They would just think, this is life. Children die, you know, adults die, animals die, but that's fine. We're alive, you know. Fabian even made a comment that it's okay, everybody dies, but you and I, we're not going to die. You know, that, that <laughs> sort of arrogance, and you know, we're not going to die, we're going to enjoy. 
I thought it was interesting and maybe a bit of transposition that when Agnes eventually goes to Paris and has a press conference for her book, it seems like the only thing that reporters want to know is, so are these stories real? Did they really happen to you? You know, were you, are you really a pig herder? Did you really see this? Did you do that? And that's where I thought, oh, like, is this a little bit of you (laughs) responding to what I'm sure seems like the biggest question in fiction is, yes, like, is this autobiographical? Is this true? Did this really happen? How much of this is real? I'm curious if you have ideas about why that seems to be always the thing that people know. I mean, and then there's just this beautiful part where I believe Agnes says they're talking about that. And she said, all worlds fabricated or not are equally real. And then she went on to say they're equally unreal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yes. You know, when I showed a couple early readers the draft and someone did mention, someone said, well, you're making a lot of comments about the whole publishing world. (laughs) And I thought, well, maybe I am. I think you're right because I don't know if women writers get asked that more than men or maybe if you are an immigrant writer, I mean, anytime they can attach something or your biography to your writing, people do ask, you know, has that happened to you? How much of your writing is autobiographical? And I think, I mean, as a fiction writer, I would just push back. You know, I want to write two French girls. You can never, you know, I did not grow up in France or the French countryside. I did not grow up in World War, post-World War II world. I think in a way, writing the book was also a little bit of pushback on that. You know, I can say this book is as autobiographical as all the other books I've written, which also means it's not autobiographical, it's fiction. It's, these are made up characters in a, in a fabricated world. But you're asking, why do people like to know that? I don't know. I think people want to, have sort of some insider's knowledge to behind the scenes stories, maybe. I mean, as much as this is not your life and you did not experience this, you did not grow up in post-World War II France. Yeah, I thought, oh, well, there seems like there's a lot here that probably is very personal and is very real. And I think that was my kind of question about the transposition of like, do the details of what happens in a story? Yes, those are unreal, but ultimately there is some personal truth probably revealed in writing. How could there not be if a story comes from you? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I thought your last book was, was a very profound exploration of that, of something that is obviously, you know, where you wrote about a mother and a son speaking Mm -hmm. when the son is dead. So that's Mm -hmm. ultimately a fiction that is not real. That is impossible. And yet it's a deep and profound book about Mm -hmm. something that is real and that, you know, did happen. I thought that's such a poetic answer to this question of the real, kind of blowing that open. Right, right. I also think there are two kinds of realness. One is factual real, you know, these are facts and these are real. But facts are only a small part of realness or real world. And there's the second layer of that realness. It's not facts, it's the emotional truth as he said, it's how you feel. And that, you know, one example, I mean, I did do some research. I didn't put a lot of research into the novel because I like to forget all the research I've done. So, but there was one fact that I retained from the research was when American soldiers occupied the French countryside in the West of France, they brought the orange fruit 
into the region. And that was the first time all the villagers there had ever seen oranges in their lives. Not only they had never seen oranges, they had never seen anything in that color because in their world, there was not an orange color. So that fact was so fascinating because I grew up in Beijing and when I was 10, American grad students, you know, inline skated down our street was the first time I saw a foreigner in our street. But he was wearing a backpack in neon green. And I could tell you in 1982, neon green was not a color that existed in China. So do I know orange? Yes, I do know oranges, but I did not know neon green. And I know that kind of shocking astonishment to see a color you've never known you know, in the world. That was the same feeling as the girls saw oranges for the first time. So I do think that's real. That's the emotional realness. Ultimately, you know, for Agnes, she has this moment of notoriety and then she kind of fades back into regular life. She does go to America, but she doesn't stay a famous author. And just again, bringing it to the autobiographical, that was not your fate. You, <laughs> <laughs> you were a child prodigy. You came to America. You became a writer. And now you've continued to have a lot of literary success and to continue to write. But I've read in interviews that you've said sometimes you question if you wouldn't have been happier staying in science if the writing life was maybe ultimately not for you. I wonder why that thought occurs to you, you know, if, if you still feel that way or how much you feel that way. Right. You know, how much do I feel that way? I think people often, we do often have those fleeting moments of, you know, wonder or doubt about our lives. But I think the deeper question to me is, you know, as a fiction writer, I do always think about what the alternative is. For all my characters, they have an alternative outcome to their stories. But, you know, at the beginning of a book, so I'm going to quote Elisa Bowen when she wrote an introduction to how to write a novel. She said, at the beginning of a novel, all characters have alternatives. But by the end of the novel, they run out their alternatives, which means their fate is set, right? Inevitability sets in. So I think Agnes and Fabian did not start with a lot of alternatives. But they still, you know, I think what's interesting with these two characters, different than all the characters I've written is other characters all have alternatives. They do not have alternatives, which is why they make their own games to set up their alternatives. So they conjured alternatives from nowhere. And all of a sudden, one of them's life is set, you know, flying, you know, soaring. But again, I think coming to America, getting married, that's Agnes. Eventually, that's her life. She thinks about her alternative. I do think not having taken this, you know, the field of science eventually for my career, I do sometimes think about, well, what is that alternative life? You know, what that life is. But that doesn't mean it's different than regret. Sometimes we do regret in life. But this is not regret. This is curiosity. This is thinking. Well, I have lost that track of my life. I will never become a scientist again. Oh, but that's the alternative I want to keep in mind. The fact that this book kind of ends on the feeling that Agnes is writing another book. 
you know, she is writing the book that we're reading, one assumes, but it's like the book ends on this vast potential because every book seems like is full of potential in a way that that you kind of get to explore the alternatives every time you write, that the novel is so alive until it's done and anything can happen. And that that's a space that one maybe doesn't get in life, but one gets in art continuously. And I think that's... That's well said. That's exactly right. Yeah. So at least there's that. Mm-hmm. I want to thank you so much for speaking with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. That was Ewan Lee. Her new book is The Book of Goose. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd really love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Ji-Ha Lee. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vodden. Thank you.